I believe with all my heart that I was going to go a different direction tonight, and the Lord really put it upon my heart that this is where we need to be, uh, especially in the days we're living in. Uh, because I, I truly believe the Lord wants to give us hope, comfort, instructions on how we're to live out our faith, even during the most difficult times we live in. And I guess, you know, we can say we're living in pretty interesting times today. Uh, Warren Worsby put it like this. He said, while there's life, there's hope. The ancient Roman saying is still quoted today. And like most adages, it has an element of truth, but no guarantee of certainty. It's not the fact of life that determines hope, but the faith of life. A Christian believer has a living hope because his faith and hope are in God. This living hope is the major theme of Peter's first letter. He's saying to all believers, be hopeful. And I like that. And I, again, I think it's really important for us to understand these things because if we don't, we're going to live out our Christian life in a way that is not going to shine for Jesus Christ. We are living in a very dark period of time in history. And as dark as it is, we should be shining really brightly. Um, and if you think about it, where else are we going to go? Who else has the answers to our problems? I mean, does the world have the answers? I think we can all say absolutely not. So our hope is in Christ. And, you know, as Jesus has come into our lives, man, we should be shouting for joy no matter what is going on in this crazy world. I'm not saying we approve or agree with the things that are happening, but we've already been warned of these events that are taking place. So we shouldn't be surprised by them. We shouldn't be overwhelmed for them. by them. We shouldn't lose hope. We should keep our eyes on Jesus. And so tonight we're going to embark on an adventure, I believe, of encouragement, of hope in the days we're living in. And again, you know, think about Peter. He's not speaking from some ivory tower, speaking forth without any knowledge or experience of persecution. He understood what it was all about, and he's encouraging others who are experiencing these very things. Because Peter wrote this letter to a group of Christians who were being persecuted for their faith. And it was going to even get more intense under the reign of Caesar Nero. And Peter's message is really twofold. He wants them to have a steadfast endurance during this time and to, to live a life of commendable behavior in spite of what they're facing. And again, we shouldn't be surprised by what we see happening. And you know, we're going to see things, I think, get worse even in America. But you know what? God does some of his greatest work in the darkest of times. And so we should be going, Lord, what are you going to do? What's down the road? What do you have for us? How do you want to minister to these people that are hopeless? Because when you look at these faces of people today, they're wondering what in the world is going on. Right? I mean, think about it. When you lose touch with Mr. Potato Head, and now he's just a potato head, that's not a good thing. But remember what Jesus told us in Matthew 10. He said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Yes, ever since the church got started on the day of Pentecost, persecution has come upon it. And now it's not just by the Jews or local communities. Rome is coming down hard upon them. I said Caesar Nero uh, was involved with that. And 
it seemed that Peter arrived in Rome sometime in the year like 62 AD after Paul was released from his first Roman imprisonment. He had his dealings with Nero, and I believe that Paul just laid out the gospel message to Nero. Because after that encounter, it seems like Nero was either demon-possessed or crazy, probably both. He burns Rome trying to get rid of some buildings, and it did more than that, and he blamed Christians for it. So now persecution against Christians is increasing. And Peter's writing probably is 63 and 62, or 64 AD, 1 Peter in 63, uh, 2 Peter around 64. He was short, put to death shortly after that second letter was written. And Nero wanted to crucify Peter. Peter felt he could not do it. He couldn't die the way his Lord did. And again, this is historical records, not biblical records. So he was martyred for his faith upside down on a cross. Paul is rearrested by Nero, had him beheaded around 66 AD. And it's interesting. You know, why do I think Peter was in Rome? Well, in 1 Peter 5.13, he wrote, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Some say, well, that was literal Babylon. I don't think so. Uh, Some say it was a Babylon in Egypt. I don't think so. I think this was um, uh, a name given, kind of a code name, uh, not to get anyone in trouble, but it was a code name for for Rome. Um, And so if Rome is persecuting Christians, and that's growing, and Peter is writing from Rome, he didn't want any further trouble. So he speaks of Rome as being Babylon, kind of this cryptic name. Now, here's the thing, and if you want to sum up the whole letter of 1 Peter, it's this. And I'll probably drive this point home a lot tonight. Where there's Christ, there's hope. We make it so complicated, right? Isn't it simple? Where there's Christ, there's hope. And how important we need to understand that. Because I, I've spoken to and I've you know, heard from a lot of Christians that are just overwhelmed by all that's going on. And it's almost as if God has died. But I guarantee you this, he has not. He is still on the throne. He's still in charge. And none of these things take him by surprise. Do you think, you know, God's in heaven going, Joe Biden got in? Who was in charge of that? Are you kidding me? He knows exactly what's going on. So for us, it's not like, why did you let this happen, Lord? It's like, Lord, what do you want to do now? How do we reach these people? That's the key, because where there's Christ, there's hope. And with that as our introduction, let's just pick up 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And let's see what the Lord has for us this evening as we study his word and see this glorious and encouraging truth come forward that where there's Christ, there's hope. Peter wrote this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Let me just stop right there. We don't have to guess who wrote this letter. It's, Peter says it's him. And he's, he's, we see his calling by God that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ and an important leader within the church. And thus, this is kind of like, wow, this is a letter from Peter. This is important. We need to pay attention. And Really, when you think about this, and Peter says that he's an apostle, in the broadest sense of the word apostle, we're all apostles because it means one who was sent out as an, or an ambassador. 
Now, we're not part of the 12. We're not part of the apostles. But we are men and women who are ambassadors for Christ. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 20. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So we represent Christ to a world that is lost in sin. We're not going to give our own message. We're going to give the message of our leader, Jesus Christ. He's commissioned us. We're ambassadors, just like the president has ambassadors all over the world, right? They don't go to these countries and tell the leaders of those countries what they want. They have to speak for the president. And we're speaking for our master, Jesus Christ, the one who not only gives life, but also sustains life. And Peter's writing to pilgrims uh, of the dispersion. Uh, Again, persecution against Christians is pushing them out farther and farther. These cities were located in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And he calls them pilgrims, you know, not the John Wayne movies that some of you may remember. But we're no longer of this world. We're aliens and strangers. We're pilgrims in this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're just passing through. Too many times we as Christians make this our home, and then when bad things happen, we go, oh, my gosh, I lost this, I lost that, this is happening. That's, this is not our home. We're here on a mission. We're ambassadors for Christ. And it's a tough journey. But Peter said in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. We're pilgrims, sojourners, passing through. And we're ministering the love of Jesus Christ to the lost. And we're no longer of this world. We were of this world before we got saved, but not any longer. You know, it took probably seven days or so for the Jews to get out of Egypt, out of the world. It took them 40 years to get the world out of the Jews. And that's kind of what the Lord does with us, right? It takes a long time because we hold on to it so much. But I'll tell you what, just like water in a boat will make it sink, too much of the world will make us in us will make us sink as well. So we have to be, in, in, we have to be careful. Um, Look at verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Keep in mind that 1 Peter chapter 1 to 1 Peter chapter 2.12 is all about the salvation of the believer. And specifically in verses 1 through 12 of 1 Peter, he's just talking about salvation. And as much as some like to deny this fact, Peter shows us here that the Holy Trinity is involved in our salvation. And again, I realize there are those that deny the triunity of God, and they're wrong. The scriptures speak very clearly about this. Peter starts out with our election, or how God the Father chose us out of his grace for the kingdom. He said, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And the word foreknowledge basically means knowledge known in advance. Well, of course, God knows everything, right? He knows the beginning from the end. And thus he knows who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. 
Now, some come to the conclusion because of this, like five-point Calvinists, that God has predestined some for heaven. and He's also predestined some for hell. You have no choice in the matter. If you want to be saved and God hasn't predestined you to be saved, that's it for you. You can't be saved because God predestined you for hell. And if you are saved and you don't want to be saved, which I don't know why, but because God predestined you to be saved, you can't be unsaved. Well, that's ridiculous. First of all, if that were true, then anyone going to hell could say, God, why did you do this to me? Do you think God is sending people to hell? No, it's a choice of our own. God's desire is all should be saved. We see that in 2 Peter 3.9. Then why aren't they? It's very simple. It's called free will. We all have a free will, a choice to enter in or reject what God is showing us. Now, if we enter in, we're predestined, and if we reject Jesus, then we're not. But God knows ahead of time, but he doesn't create us to go to hell or to go to heaven. Like I said, he wants everyone to go to heaven, but it's a choice. So then, is it 50% God's sovereign will and 50% our free will to choose? Absolutely not. It's 100% God's sovereign will and 100% man's free will. It's 200%. And I didn't do good in math, so you're going to have to accept that from me. But think of it like this, because it is. It's 100% and 100%. Think about railroad tracks. They run parallel, right? you got one and one. And the train sits on the tracks. Free will, predestination. Train's on there. And where is it going to take you to the destination? Exactly. Predestination, election, and man's free will. In fact, we see over and over this invitation by God. Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. What is it? An invitation. You come to me. Jesus didn't say, come to me, I predestined you. It's an invitation. Isaiah 118, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Again, an invitation. Let's talk about this. And of course, John 3, or chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. See, it's an invitation. And I realize, you know, that word world, that God so loved the world, for the Calvinists, they have to change the definition. The word world only means those that have been predestined for heaven. Well, that's not what it says. But you would have to read it then, for God so loved those who he was going to save that he gave his only begotten son. That's not true. He gave his only begotten son so that all may hear and come to saving faith. Anyone, everyone, whosoever. So that's the work of the Father. Secondly, it's the sanctification of God, the Holy Spirit, working in our lives. And it begins the moment we're saved. As soon as we're justified before God, accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the sanctification process begins. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 14. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, 
for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The sanctification of the Spirit working in us, teaching us, guiding us. And then there's the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all our sins. 1 John 3, 5, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins and in him there is no sin. Revelation 1.5, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Do you see how the Holy Trinity is actively involved in our salvation, in our lives? Now some will say, yeah, but the word Trinity is not in the scriptures. My question I ask is, does it have to be to believe it? I think the scriptures are clear. They speak for themselves just because the word's not in there. I mean, look at Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17, as Jesus is being baptized in the Jordan River. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We see Jesus Christ, God the Son. We see the Holy Spirit, and we see the Father. God the Father speaking. And to use the uh, idea that the Trinity is not in the Bible so we can't say that it's real is ridiculous because there's a lot of biblical concepts that don't have a specific word describing them in the Bible. In fact, the word Bible is not in the Bible. Did you know that? But let me, let me show you. This, this may freak you out here. Did you know that the word omniscient is not in the Bible? But all-knowing is. And yet we use that phrase a lot. Why? Because it's true. Omnipotence, all-powerful. Omnipotence isn't in the Bible. Omnipresence, not in the Bible. God is present everywhere because that's what the scriptures tell us. The concept of the Trinity starts in Genesis and continues on through the book of Revelation, both the Old and New Testament. So just because the word Trinity is not there doesn't negate it. In fact, we see it here in 1 Peter 1, verse 2. He also says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. You know, the Siamese twins of the New Testament, grace and peace. And you can never experience the grace of God or excuse me, the peace of God until you experience the grace of God. You have to come to that saving faith to experience the peace of God in your life because true peace comes from the Prince of Peace. James Denny put it like this. He said, grace is the first and the last word of the gospel and peace, perfect spiritual soundness is the finished work of grace. Yeah. You see, isn't it wonderful that we can just rest on the finished work of Christ, that it's not nothing that I have done, but everything that he has done what peace that brings. It is finished, he said. Absolutely. So we have seen that God saves us, and now Peter's going to show us that he not only saves us, but here's one that's also important. He sustains us. We won't be lost. We can't lose our salvation. And again, that's a hot topic today. And, you know, people feel, well, if you don't do this and you don't do that, then, you know, you're going to lose your salvation. I've even heard pastors talk about if you're not good enough, you're not going to even go up in the rapture. Well, again, 
is our salvation and everything that goes along with it based on how good I am? Because if it is, I'm in serious trouble. And don't laugh, you are too. (laughs) We all are. Look at verse 3. These are great verses here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and doesn't fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, this section again is dealing with our salvation and Peter speaks of what God does in our lives. And I like this. He gives praise unto God for his abundant mercy that he's bestowed upon us. You see, we can't save ourselves. Jeremiah 13.23, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. In other words, you can't. You know, you can't be good enough to get into heaven. Apart from Christ, we're dead in sin. Now, here's the thing. It says God has begotten us. We're born again. And the old man is dead. And the spirit controls us. The flesh nature is going to be with us until we go to be with the Lord. But the old man is dead. It's crucified with Christ. But now we've got the flesh warring against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. That's the battle we face. That sin nature is still there. And whatever you feed will be manifested in your life. Are you feeding the spirit or are you feeding the flesh? But we're new creation. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. God has changed our ways. Now, let's think about this. Our earthly inheritance, is it safe? Is it everlasting? Is it never going to fade away? Of course not. Nothing of this world will last. It's always moving from order to disorder, from new to rotting and decaying, from yours to someone else's. I mean, you know, when I was 20, I didn't understand that. Now, at 62, I understand I'm moving from order to disorder. I get up in the morning and I'm hurting. I slept. It's not like I ran a marathon during the night. My body's wearing down. So nothing of this world is going to last. But our heavenly inheritance is incorruptible. It's not going to be destroyed. It's never going to be lost. It's undefiled, unstained, unpolluted. It's never going to fade away. It's not going to wither and die. But the things of this world the things that we send to treasure so much and hang on so tightly to are not going to last. And Peter says, holding on to the things of God, this is our living hope. Spurgeon said it's, it is also called a living hope because it's imperishable. Other hopes fade like withering flowers. The hopes of the rich... The boasts of the proud, all these will die out as a candle when it flickers in the socket. The hope of the greatest monarch has been crushed before our eyes. He set up the standard of victory too soon and has seen it trailed in the mire. There is no unwanting hope beneath the changeful moon. The only imperishable hope is that which climbs above the stars 
and fixes itself upon the throne of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. And here's the thing. Peter says God has a place reserved in heaven for us. I don't know about you, but I like that. Because when God makes a reservation for me, he doesn't misplace it or he doesn't put someone else in my place. Oh, I'm sorry, Joe, you got here a little late. I put so-and-so in your spot. No, it's reserved for me. It's reserved for you in heaven. Well, how could I be so sure? Because it's not based upon my faithfulness. It's based upon the faithfulness of Christ. And all we do is receive that gift by faith. See, Peter doesn't say, you know what? Your salvation is secure. That place reserved for you in heaven is there as long as you hold on real tight. If you don't, if you let go, if you lose your grip, you're going to lose your salvation. Man, if he said that, I would be very discouraged because, I mean, think about our lives. I mean, I wish every single day my walk with the Lord was perfect, but it's not. I'm human. And I am really thankful that the Bible speaks of human beings. Men like David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. What did he do? Adultery, murder. Wow. They weren't perfect people. But God forgave them as they repented. And I'm so thankful for that. And my, my place is reserved for me in heaven. It's assured because God put in the reservation. In fact, in verse 5 he says that we are kept. And that was a military term used to refer to a garrison within the city. If God is on guard over our salvation, do you think anyone is going to take that away from us? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, remember what Paul said in Philippians 1.6? Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What does that tell me? It tells me my salvation is secure. Who started the work in our lives? Jesus did. Who's going to finish the work in our life? Oh, Jesus did. You mean not me? No. Yes, the Holy Spirit is working on sanctifying me, sanctifying you, but my salvation is secure because the work he started, he's going to finish. Our hope is in the Lord. He saved us. He's going to sustain us. And one day he's going to take us to glory. Praise God for that. Look at verse 6 here in 1 Peter chapter 1. In this you greatly rejoice. Absolutely. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by the various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter opens up, he says, in this, and it's not just speaking of our salvation, I think it's speaking of all our inheritance in Christ, which obviously is born out of our salvation. But all that God has given to us, and all the trials we go through in this life, 
what we have in Christ doesn't even compare to all the things that are happening. You know, Peter and James, they speak of joy in trials, various trials, all kinds of difficulties mixed together. I wish they didn't talk about that, but they do. Joy in these trials. How can that be? How can there be joy in trials? Think about all that God has done for you. Our salvation is secure. Our inheritance incorruptible, undefiled. It doesn't fade away. We have a place reserved for us in heaven. And our salvation is kept by the power of God. That's what he said in verse 5. It's not by my power, not by my strength. It's by the power of God, which tells me it's secure. I don't have to worry about it. What an incredible inheritance we have in Christ. No wonder, he says, we greatly rejoice in this. Christian joy is independent of the circumstances we face because our joy is based in the Lord. It's focused upon him. What about trials? Well, you know, remember what James said. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see, James is saying God brings trials into our lives to test our faith, to see if our faith is real, to help us to grow, to mature. And these are only temporary. They will have an ending point. Yes, sometimes that ending point is going home to be with the Lord. It's just the way it is. And I I will guarantee you, and you could see me when I get to heaven, and you can tell me, I guarantee you when maybe a, a sickness or something causes you to pass from this life into the next, to be with the Lord, I guarantee you, not one of you, when I get up there, will come up to me and say, Joe, look at this is what happened to me. I died down there. You're not going to even talk about that. What you you got to, oh, Jesus, he's, he's, he fills this place. It's all about him. Do you think you're going to be upset about going to heaven? Now, of course, when our loved ones die and we're still here, we're upset because we love them. But if they know the Lord, we know where they're at. But there is that, that pain because we miss them. You know, we remember the story of, of Lazarus, right? Friend of Jesus dies. He's in the tomb four days. And as Jesus comes to the tomb, remember, he's going to raise him from the dead. It says, Jesus wept. And people go, oh, yeah, Jesus wept because Lazarus died. Wait a minute. He's going to raise him from the dead. He's not upset because Lazarus is dead. He's going to be with him. I don't know if Lazarus is going to be happy when he comes back. Why did Jesus weep? Because of his Mary, Martha, family, friends, who were grieving over the losing of Lazarus. That pain, because it was something that was never intended. But when sin entered this world, so did the death process. We need to keep that in mind. We're going to be in glory one day. And we're going to be rejoicing. And I'm going to be in heaven singing and clapping at the same time in rhythm. My wife is gone. I can't wait for that. But... I cannot clap and sing at the same time. And you don't want me starting to clap because, oh my gosh, you know, everyone will be off, you know. 
so I don't clap too often. But wow, you know, think about the trials that we're going to be facing. And maybe some of you are facing them right now. God is working. Refining us like gold, getting rid of the garbage from our lives, that sanctification process, testing our faith. As Paul said, we know all things work together for good to those who love the Lord, to those who are called according to his purpose. We may not see it, but we know it. Why? Because God said it. God said it. You know, on Sunday mornings at Calvary in Manitowoc, we're studying through the book of Ruth, and I just finished up uh, working on the last study in Ruth because Naomi, who's a player in this story, was so upset because all these things happened to her life. Her husband died, her sons died. Uh, she had nothing. She went back to Bethlehem after going to Moab, which she shouldn't have been there. She had nothing, and she was bitter at God. And she never saw the hand of God upon her life until it was down the road a little bit. And then she saw what God was doing. And she went from, when she came into Bethlehem, and the women saw her, they were gone for 10 years. The women said, is that you, Naomi? They couldn't believe it because those 10 years of living in sin took its toll on Naomi. Is that you? And she said, don't call me Naomi anymore pleasantness. Call me Mara, bitter. She was bitter at God. But she didn't see the hand of God working. And I think many times, you know, we look at all the things that happened this past year, the craziness of all this. We don't see the hand of God working because we're so focused on what's before us. Take some time, sit down with the Lord and say, Lord, show me. Show me that you're working. Because he is. And let that maybe anger or bitterness be changed back to pleasantness. Oh, God loves us so much, doesn't he? And how, you know, how, how we, do we love him? Well, because he first loved us, Right? How do I know he loves me? I see what he did for me. I know who I am. And I see who God is. And I go, wow, you, you were willing to sacrifice your life for someone like me. Thank you, Lord. And thus, you know, God will see us through every situation we face in this life. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm sure if I was to go around this room and ask you, just give me a synapse of all the things that have gone on in your life over the last 10 years. Probably I'll leave here depressed, right? But what did God do through those times? Because I guarantee you he was doing something. I guarantee it. Look at the end result. Look at verse 9 here. What's the end result of all this? The what? Salvation of your souls. What does that mean? I'm secure in Christ, right? Receiving the end of our faith. What is the end of our faith going to be with Jesus? Thank you, Lord. Thank you. One writer said, our willingness as Christians to endure earthly affliction says a lot about our trust in God. He is fashioning us into praiseworthy and honorable vessels for his glory. 
Absolutely. As Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians 4 that we do not lose heart. And I need to be reminded of that. Don't lose heart. Even though the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for a light affliction. Wow. Paul, do you know what I went through? And I think Paul would say, Joe, do you know what I went through? <laughs> you need to read because I've been through a lot. Our light affliction is for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We need to remember that. This is all passing away. This is temporary. Being with Jesus is going to be eternal. Verse 10 here in 1 Peter chapter 1. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand that the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. You know, the coming of the Messiah was not a New Testament idea. In fact, you could go all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and onward throughout the Old Testament and see this portrayed. We see it in Jeremiah 31. God is establishing a new covenant, not based on the faithfulness of man, but on God. Not written on tablets of stone, but written on our hearts. And the prophets wrote about the coming Messiah, but they didn't understand fully what that was all about. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 13, verses 16 and 17, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You see, these prophets knew they were ministering not only to their own people, but to future generations that would read these words. And now what they wrote, these words were coming to pass, they were being fulfilled in Christ. And it's not just the prophets that we're trying to understand. We see angels trying to figure this out. The grace of God. What is, it's hard for them to even imagine that. Paul talked about it in Ephesians 3 verses 10 and 11. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah, what God has done for us is amazing. That gift he extends to us. Amazing grace. So as we continue on here in 1 Peter 1, we're going to move from salvation of the believer to the sanctification of the believer. Look at verse, starting in verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Now, here's the thing. The Lord is coming back, and because that, and because of all that he's done for us, we need to prepare ourselves. How? 
gird up the loins of your mind. Now, we don't use that phrase, gird up, much anymore. But to put it in our vernacular, we say, you know, it's time to roll up your sleeves. You see, back then they wore long robes, great for walking, but not for running or fighting in. So what they would do if they had to run or they were in battle is they would pull these robes up and tuck them into their belt. They would gird their loins so they wouldn't trip over them. And Peter is saying, you need to live a life that is ready. Don't place yourself in a situation that's going to cause you to stumble and fall. Don't trip yourself up. And the minds is a great place to start. Are we going to follow what God has said? Are we going to follow what the world or the enemy is telling us? And Peter makes four points here, or five points here in these four verses. Prepare your mind for action. We talked a little bit about that. Get rid of the loose and sloppy thinking. Control what you think about those things you decide to set your mind upon so you don't get tripped up. He also speaks that we need to be sober or self-controlled. Don't let the outward circumstances control your life, but allow the Spirit of God to control you. I'll give you a for instance. You're driving down the road and someone cuts you off. Outward circumstances, how are you going to respond? How are you going to wave to them? Don't have a Jesus bumper sticker on your car if you're not going to be representing him, right? Peter also says, set our hope fully on the Lord. That seems obvious, doesn't it? But think about it. Where do we place our hope in? You know, we have news today 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? And I've seen people do this within our church, that they're watching the news all the time. And they're angry and they're mad and they're ready to take the shotgun and blow the TV up. I'm thinking, just turn it off. But, you know, do whatever. If you've got to blow it up, go ahead. They're setting their hope on the newscasters. Why? (laughs) Why, for the love of God, why are you listening to them? Set your hope on the Lord. It's simple. Peter says, don't conform yourself to the former loss. Why? We're no longer controlled by the flesh, but by the Spirit of God. And thus, if we build up that inner man, what God is doing on the inside overflows outwardly. You know, so many people today put on the facade of looking good, you know, all the makeup and whatever. But what's going on in here? I I don't want to pretend to be a Christian. I want God to do the work on the inside so what he's done on the inside will flow outwardly. This is a work of God. The facade is my job, what I have done, and it's not going to last. Again, just have someone cut me off the road in my car and you'll find out. Be holy because God is holy. Now, I'm so thankful it doesn't say be as holy as God. Right? Because I'm done. I'm not even close. He says, be holy because God is holy. Manifest his characteristics in your life. Be like him. Be set apart for God. We're his children. And that's what God desires. 
And yeah, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What's the answer then? Listen to what Peter says here in verse 17 of 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct conduct yourselves throughout the time of your sojourning here in fear. We can call upon the Lord any time of the day or night. We can ask our Father to help us to live a life that is pleasing to him. And he will give us the power to do it. The power of the Holy Spirit. He wants us to walk accordingly. And Peter says, God shows no partiality towards us. You know, God doesn't have a teacher's pot. You know, it doesn't go, you know, I like Billy Bob. You know, he's a really great guy. Joe, well, you know, he's, he's all right. You know, when he sees us, he goes, I love that Bob guy. He's a great guy. Tom, Sue, I love them. Wait a minute, I thought you said you loved Bob. Well, I do. And you love Tom and Sue? Yeah, all the same. Wow, thank you, Lord. Help me to walk in a way that would be pleasing to you. Not out of the law or constraint, but because I love you and I want to serve you. I want to reflect your nature to those around me. He goes on in verse 18, talking about how we're redeemed. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a, of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus Christ has purchased us from the slavery of sin and has set us free, never to re, be returned as a slave any longer. And we weren't purchased with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's what it cost him to redeem us back. And I think the point is, in regard to sanctification and holy living, what this is, why Peter put this in here, he's saying, hey, Joe, this is what Jesus did for you. Look at how he gave his life for you. Walk accordingly then. Honor him. And you can't purchase this gift of life because it's already been paid for. That means, and I like this, because the rich, the poor, the middle class, anyone who comes to Jesus can freely receive the gift. Could you imagine if you had to pay to get into heaven and you had no money, you had nothing, how can I get in? The price is already paid for by Jesus. You just have to receive the free gift. And he's the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, who was without blemish or acquired sin in his life, without spot or inherited sin in his life. He had to be the perfect sacrifice or he couldn't go to the cross. That's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we can become the righteousness of God in him. He took our sin, he gave us his righteousness. So the father looks at us, you know what he sees? He sees us as perfect. In a positional sense, we are perfect. Practical, everyday living, that sanctification process is still going on. Look at verse 20. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you 
who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You know, please understand, when Adam sinned, God didn't say, oh man, I got to come up with a plan B. I didn't see this one coming. He was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, before God even created man. He knew what he was going to have to do to save man from his sin. Can you imagine that? If you knew that you were going to have to do that, I think you would start all over, wouldn't you? Forget, I'm not going to create this type of man. I'm going to do something different here. But God knew exactly what man would do and what he was going to have to do to save man. And it shows me how much he loves me. He was willing to sacrifice his life for me. And it was all in his timing. And again, I have to admit, my timing and God's timing aren't always the same. You probably figure that one out for yourselves too. We want things happening at certain times. But God has a perfect plan. When the fullness of time had come, he sent his son Jesus Christ into the world. It was the perfect time for him to come into this world. The Greek language was the language that was spoken all over the place. People understood it. It was the perfect timing. And I like that because, you know what? No matter what's going on in my life, God has a perfect plan. And it may not be according to what I think should happen, but it is what he knows needs to happen. And I'm going to rest in that. It gives me great comfort and great peace. Look at verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Okay, here's the thing. Now you're a new creation in Christ. And what is the greatest evidence of this new birth? Love. Did you notice it's not quoting 134 scriptures? It's love. We have to demonstrate that kind of love to other people within the body of Christ and unbelievers. And this love separates us from the world. The world has a brotherly type of love, a phileo type of love in the Greek. But God's talking about an agape love. Unconditional love. In fact, that's in John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another, and by this all will know that you are my disciples indeed if you have love for one another. What is the fruit of the Spirit that Paul spoke about in Galatians chapter 5? It's a love, agape love. And out of that agape love, he shows us how that agape love is manifested with joy and peace and long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are all things that are born out of love. Now, what's interesting in this verse here in Peter is that he uses two different Greek words for love. In sincere love of the brethren, he uses the Greek word phileo. And like I said, that's a friendship love, a brotherly love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. So it cares about others and enjoys being with the person. Um, Just again, brotherly love. But then he speaks of a different type of love. He says, love one another fervently with a pure heart. And that's agape love. 
that's unconditional. This is supernatural love. It's something that cannot be manufactured within us. Agape love is poured out into our hearts when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives the moment we're saved. And we just need to be open to that love and let it flow not only in us, but through us. Well, why did Peter use two different Greek words for love here? Well, we are to love phileo each other like family, that affection, uh, kindness, generally like each other, being around them. And that is so important, especially, you know, something that I noticed with the whole um, COVID and elections and stuff is that people are on all, all different sides all over the place on these issues. But in the end, who really cares? Because it's really not about Jesus. So let's not fight over that, but that's something that has happened within churches where they fight over these issues. Well, who cares? And what if in the end you find you're wrong or both of you are wrong? Who cares? Have that brotherly love. It's not a, I guarantee you, you will not find coronavirus in the scriptures or Joe Biden in the scriptures. So don't fight over those things. Brotherly love. Look out for those that need help. Care for them. And then that supernatural love that is just unconditional. It doesn't matter what anyone said or has done to you. You just love them anyway. And you know what? It drives the world crazy. They can't understand. How could you be so nice to me? Because God loves you and he loves me. And if it wasn't for God, you'd be on the ground now. (laughs) No, just kidding. Maybe not. I don't know. But probably true. Let's live out our faith in such a way that it shows the agape love of Christ flowing through us. But look at verse 23. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. You know, people today, even Christians, can say what they want about the Bible. They can try and put it down or say it's you know, just not enough. Peter nails it here. If you don't believe that the word of God is enough, you need to read those verses again. It brings forth life. Because God's word is living and powerful. Faith comes by hearing, Paul said, and hearing by the word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The man of God may be complete. How? By being in the word of God. From Genesis to Revelation, But again, there's a lot of people and leaders, pastors that disregard God's word. Think about this. Why did the Roman Catholic Church put to death millions of Christians? Because they were trying to get the word of God into the hands of the common people. Well, why was that so, why did that make them so mad? Because the truth will set you free. That's the key. 
you got to keep the Bible out of the hands of the people. This new law that they're trying to put forth, the Equality Act thing, the abomination, what they're trying to do is to get us not to be able to teach all of the word of God. Because now you are being judgmental, judgmental, hateful, intolerant, whatever they want to say. That, if that law gets mandated, you know what's going to happen at Calvary Chapel of Manitowoc, and I'm sure here too at Calvary Chapel of Appleton, from Genesis to Revelation, the word of God is going to be taught. End of story. I obey God rather than man. I am sorry, but when the government tells me I can't teach from the Bible or I can't speak about Jesus, I'm sorry, now I have to obey God. It's just the way it is. And yet, again, like I said, there's leaders that say you teach God's word too much. You need to be open to things outside of the word of God. Uh, Yeah, the Bible contains the word of God, but we're not really sure which ones. And they'll pick them out for you. Satan wants us to get away from the word of God because it brings forth life. It brings salvation to people and it helps us to walk accordingly. It tells us what's right. It tells us what's wrong. It tells us how to get right when we've gone astray. It tells us, tells us how to walk right. And it will endure forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. And yet, isn't it interesting, the people that try to say, the Bible's going to be gone. It's going to be done away with. In AD 303, the Roman emperor Diocletian demanded that every copy of the scriptures in the Roman Empire be burned. He failed. 25 years later, the Roman Empire uh, Emperor Constantine commissioned a scholar named Eusebius to prepare 50 copies of the Bible at government expense. The word of God endures forever. Voltaire, famous French atheist, died in 1778, made the infamous prediction that within 100 years of his death, the Bible would disappear from the earth. And I I truly believe God has a really good sense of humor, and I like that, because 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and used his own printing press to produce thousands of Bibles for distribution. You are so funny, God. Yes, your word endures forever. I like what F.F. Bruce wrote, Christian scholar, professor, author. No part of the human body can be properly explained outside the context of the whole body. So no part of the Bible can be properly explained or understood outside the context of the Bible as a whole. Amen to that. So this is where we will be attacked for our faith. The word of God will be attacked. But our God knows these things. You know, and I'll just share this real quickly with you because this is my wife's grandfather. He was a missionary in China before the communists came in and took over. And um, he was there, and then the communists came in and they had to flee the country. And they had to get, it was an it's amazing story. They were on boats. They had to zigzag in the water because of submarines and incredible that they made it out of China alive. But he was so upset because all the work he put into bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people was now gone. 
it was over, all that hard work. But it wasn't over. Because the church grew stronger amidst all that persecution, like it is doing today in China. You know, you've seen, well, I guess we haven't seen recently because things have, the news media is not really into that, but Bible-believing churches in China were being raided, their pastors arrested, churches closed, but the state Christian churches were still standing because they taught what the state wanted them to teach. But you know what? The church continues to grow. One of the greatest evangelistic outreaches in the world today, I'm not even sure how it's happening, well, I know God's doing it, is in Iran. I mean, if you thought about it, what part of the world do you think the greatest, where more people are coming to Christ than ever before? Would you say the Middle East? That's where it's happening. Never give up on God. I don't care what happens in this country. I don't care what laws they pass. Do you think that's going to stop God? I look at a man named Daniel who was taken as a, at a young age to Babylon under a, a horrible ruler, Nebuchadnezzar. And he lived his life for God and he honored God in all that he did. And the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, gets saved. You never know what's going to happen as you live out your faith. Don't hide it under a basket. Let it shine. Because our hope is in Jesus Christ, his finished work. God has a place reserved for us in heaven that no one could take away. And I praise the Lord for that. And here's the conclusion, and please take this with you. No matter what you're going through, where there's Christ, there's hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words this evening. Especially, Lord, when things can be so difficult right now. And Lord, you give us that encouragement. You give us that hope, that assurance over and over and over again. And I guess we need to hear that because we forget it so often. Thank you, Lord, for your patience, for working in us. Lord, I pray that for everyone here, that no matter what they're going through right now, that they are encouraged in you, that they look to you to be the strength of their life, that it's not going to be by their power or their might, but by your spirit and all that they do. And Lord, do a mighty work in us and through us to see our family, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, our city, state, nation come to Christ. Use us, Lord, for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.